perception veil. A winding maze of the unknown. The malodorous stench of the unexplained. The bony, curling fingers of an unlikely ethereal hand clenching at your throat. Welcome to the dark realm of the paranormal. Push aside the fabric of the shadow boundary between real and unreal. And if you dare, step past your fears into the dark room of the Revenant. For most of my adult life, I had this friend who was really more like a brother to me. And we spent a lot of time over the years talking about the strange stuff, you know, eerie things that had happened to us. My friend, Chris, was seven years older than I was, and he was born in the early 50s into a staunch conservative Catholic family. Outside of the virgin birth and resurrection, his family was not into supernatural experiences. And so what he shared with me was all done in confidence. But uh, he's been dead now for more than 10 years, and I feel like any moratorium on talking about these things has passed. One in particular is the story he told me of the babysitter. As a boy, Chris lived in a terrace house in the north of England with his mother, father, two older brothers, and a younger sister. When he grew up, he bought the house from his parents, and then, once he was married, he and his wife lived there. I asked him once why he decided to buy the house he grew up in. Why not develop new memories with your own family in a different house? He raised one eyebrow, and he said cryptically, I never let anything beat me, not even this house. Years passed before he told me what that meant. Chris was not your average English working-class kid. By the time he was 10 years old, his school teachers were advising he be moved to a school for gifted children. But his parents refused, keeping him at the local Catholic school instead. Chris talked many times about how strict the nuns were at his school. Well, I suppose that's a bit of a cliche, but he told me the nuns who ran the school threatened him with expulsion several times for heretical views, and only the intervention of an English teacher prevented it. He published his first set of horror stories at 13 years old, his first poetry a year later. He dabbled in theater, which is where I met him. We had a moderately successful writing partnership over the years. We wrote songs and produced a number of stage plays. It was only when I suggested moving into ghost stories that for the first and only time, he turned me down flat, saying, you want to write that stuff? You write it alone. That was a bit confusing, since he had written horror stories, but you know, I didn't want to make him feel uncomfortable or angry, so instead, I conducted paranormal investigations with another friend of mine. I had a lot of experiences and tales to share, but Chris did not want anything to do with it. Sure, we could have discussions about it, but he didn't want to put his name anywhere near these experiences. And his excuse was always the same. It would be unacceptable in the eyes of his family. There was this one evening I was at his house, and we were talking about ghosts and films, our latest projects, and the women in our lives. He suddenly stopped talking 
and stared at the door to the front room. His face drained of all color, and his eyes widened. Well, what's wrong? I asked him. Look at the door handle, he whispered back. I turned from my position sitting on the floor and looked over my shoulder. It took a moment, but then I saw what he meant. More slowly than the hour hand of a clock, the door handle was rotating. Someone was opening the door very, very slowly. Hey, June, I called out, assuming it was Chris's wife, back from her darts match at the local pub. June will not be back until 11, he said. Besides, did you hear the front door open? I admitted that I had not. Stay there, and whatever you do, do not open that door. He stood up and crossed to the dining table, and he picked up a silver salt shaker and held it like a priest would hold an aspergillum, which, for those not knowing what that is, an aspergillum is a small metal wand-like device used for sprinkling holy water in a church service. Anyway, he crossed to the door with the salt shaker, holding it like a priest. He closed his eyes briefly, mumbled what I assumed was a prayer, and then threw open the door at the same time, casting salt into the opening in two broad sweeps, one horizontal, one vertical. I leaped up and ran to his side. The passageway was empty. What the hell? Chris was physically shaken, and I caught him as his knees began to buckle. Now, Chris was a big guy, eight inches taller than me and twice the weight, but I was able to help him back to his chair. All right, Chris, what's with the exorcist bit? I thought you said all that kind of stuff was a sham. He shook his head and downed a whole mug of coffee in one gulp. He then began trying to get a cigarette out of its packet and light it with fingers so obviously numb and shaking that I had to do it for him. When I said that about ghosts, it was not because I don't believe in them. It was because I do. He sat back and took a long draw on his cigarette. When I was a kid, this house terrified me, one thing after another, every day, until I put a stop to it. I watched his face. I knew Chris in storytelling mode, and this was not it. He was absolutely sincere, and he was frightened. I had never seen Chris frightened on any other occasion. You remember my grand? We all knew Chris's mad Irish granny. She was a local character, four feet tall, spry as a leprechaun, and had not been sober in 40 years. Mad Gran had once procured a stag's head from a local pub for the sole purpose of teaching Chris's elder brother a lesson. The brother had delighted in telling Penny, his younger sister, that there was no such thing as Santa, breaking the four-year-old's heart. Gran painted the stag's nose red, and the brother woke up to find it in bed with him along with a copious amount of tomato sauce in true godfather fashion with a note reading, I do exist, and here's Rudolph to prove it. <laughs> yes, I remember your Gran. Back in the old country, she was the go-to woman for this kind of thing. You know, magic, evil spirits, you name it. She knew about it. 
and what was to be done about it. I nodded. My mom did too, but when she married, dad made her give it all up. Gran was not happy about that, but, well, that's another story. The cigarette had burned away by this time. He had calmed down enough now that he was able to light another one without any help. She told me a lot about it when Dad was not around, of course. Taught me to read the cards, tea leaves, all that stuff, and how to deal with spirits. He was still clutching the shaker of salt, and grains of salt adhered to his hands. Salt, he said. You know why people think holy water works on evil? Because it's blessed? No, he shook his head. In the old days, holy water was seawater, full of salt. Salt purifies. Salt's for spirits, iron for imps and fairy folk, pure water for demons. I'll admit to having been the butt of a number of practical jokes by Chris at one time or another. So, there was a ghost at the living room door? I asked a little incredulously. When I bought this house, two days before the wedding, I had Gran come around here and we cleansed the place top to bottom, drove out anything and everything skulking here, especially her literally cleansed the hell out of it. Wait, her? I'm coming to that. I could tell he was tense. He was almost chewing the cigarette now. He was rubbing his hands together, intertwining his fingers, releasing, balling up his fists, releasing. I wanted to get a priest in here too, but no. Gran would have none of it. She always said, Priests are good for hatching, matching, and dispatching, and nothing else. <sighs> yeah, anyway, when I was a boy, my dad bought this house cheap, really cheap. The people here before us could not wait to get out. These houses were built originally for the river workers, uh, dockers, and the like. This was the 60s, and the docks were still working then. My older brothers, Walt and Jesse, were both quite a bit older than me, and so I was bottom of the heap. My sister Penny was the apple of all their eyes. Walt was the oldest, Jesse was the athlete, and I was too clever for my own good. Dad was really into the church. Mom went along with it, and so on Saturday nights when they were at a social or a meeting or something and Walt and Jesse had dates, I was stuck with looking after Penny on my own. Like I said, this house terrified me. Lying in bed at night, I used to hear things being dragged across the floor in the attic. I used to feel hands on my back when I was on the stairs. And I knew if I let go of the banister, those hands would push me down the stairs. I heard music at night. Brass band music that no one else seemed to hear. And I would feel someone sitting on the end of my bed in the dark. And I could feel whatever that was staring at me. Jesus, didn't you tell anyone? He shrugged. Yes, but they never believed me. Well, except for Gran. She gave me a bag of herbs to hang on the door handle, on the inside. How wise to the ways of the spirit world she was, because no non-living being ever sat on my bed after that. But I did get pushed down the stairs. 
I ended up at the bottom of the broken leg. After that, I started going down the stairs sideways. So, anyway, I was babysitting my sister this one night. I was ten, and this was the first time I had been allowed to be responsible for Penny. Mom told me that if there was any trouble to go next door and get Mrs. Walker. But, and she was adamant about this, but only if it was an emergency. He paused to light up another cigarette. It all started when it got dark. We had a coal fire in those days. Everyone did. But before my mom and dad went out, dad damped down the coal ash. And under no circumstances, he told me, was I to try and relight it. Penny was already in bed and asleep. And I was allowed to listen to the radio until nine. Then I had to go to bed too. He paused for a moment and looked in the direction of the fireplace. There was a sheet of formica blocking the chimney now with a new electric fire in front of it. Then he continued. It was cold in the house. I remember that. I was listening to a repeat of the goon show or around the horn or something, but it kept getting colder. Now understand this. It was not winter. It was autumn, but it was freezing in that house. I began to see my breath in the air. As if to punctuate this, he blew out a long jet of cigarette smoke. The radio was over there where the dining chair is now. The front room and dining room were separate then. And the room just got colder and colder. And then, without warning or me doing anything, the radio just went off. Now, that scared me. And I wasn't thinking anything paranormal was happening yet. I was scared my parents would think I broke it. I'll get my hide tanned for this for sure. I got blamed for most things. Walt and Jesse always blamed me. And Penny, well, she could do no wrong. So I turned the knob on the radio off and decided to pretend I had never touched it. I tucked my hands into my sleeves to get them warm and went upstairs to bed. You know, the spare room where you sleep on occasion? Well, that was my room back then. We had an outside toilet, so what is now the bathroom was Penny's room then, and the main bedroom was my brother's room. Mom and Dad slept here in the front room, and we used the dining room as a family room. Anyway, I went to bed. Now, the odd thing is that in the passage and on the stairs, the temperature was normal, not cold one bit. And then that's when I remembered that I needed to go to the toilet. So I turned around, went back downstairs through the kitchen and outside to the privy. Now, in there, it was always cold. There was a porcelain pot and cistern, white tiles on the wall, stone floor, and a bakelite seat. <sighs> Makes me shiver to think about it now. Anyhow, I went as quickly as I could and made my way back inside. And that is when I noticed that the front room light was on. I had not been in my parents' room since they went out. Their main door, that door we just saw move, and the sliding door between their room and the dining room were both shut. But I could see light shining from under the sliding door. Red light, as if the fire was still going, and white light from the bulb. When I listened, I could hear a crackling fire, which, again, it did not do. We had 
coal, not wood. I decided to go get Mrs. Walker. I was sure that whoever was in the front room was not anybody I knew, and if the house was on fire, I was sensible enough not to open the door on it, so I went on into the passage. And that is when I saw it. He paused again, and I could tell this was not a pause for some dramatic effect. Instead, it was like he was hesitant to go on. Like the very thought of what happened next and beyond that was more than he wanted to talk about. What? What? I demanded. The door had bars all over it. Wait, what? I wasn't sure I had heard that correctly. Chris took a deep breath. All across the door, left to right, some straight, some on an angle, were glowing bars of light, about seven of them. The best way I can explain it is like in the old Doctor Strange comics. They were just light. But somehow, I knew if I had touched them, it would not be good. It would hurt or burn. I just knew it. So what did you do? He swallowed hard, and I'm sure I saw a tear in his eye as he tried to make himself carry on. I turned around and went back up the passage to Mom and Dad's door. Somehow, I forced myself to lift my hand and knock on the door. If it were my dad back early, he would answer. He didn't, though. By that point, I think I was so frightened that I was on a high of sorts because the rest is all like a dream. I remember reaching out for the doorknob. It was hot. The whole door was hot. Like there was an inferno inside. But somehow I knew I had to open the door. And when I did, it swung open, and inside was not my parents' room. It was older looking, and an old-fashioned parlor. There was a huge fire burning in the grate, and gas lamps lighting up the sideboard and one big armchair by the fire. Someone was sitting in the armchair. It was a wingback chair, so I could not see them from the doorway, but I could see that whoever it was, they were stoking the fire, stirring it up to a bigger and higher and hotter blaze, the sort of blaze my father would never have allowed. He would have said it would have set the chimney on fire. I took a step into the room and the heat was, the heat was oppressive. It gave me an instant headache it was so hot and sweat broke out on my face and back and my eyes began to tear up from the smoke. But I stepped forward. I couldn't stop myself. I was praying to God to help me. I was promising to go to church every Sunday to stop swearing anything just to get out of there but I could not help myself. I walked on, one stuttering, juddering footfall at a time, until I was in front of the fire, watching that red-hot, glowing poker jabbing in and out of the fire, turning the ashes, urging the flame to greater and greater intensity. The red poker stopped moving. You should be in bed. That voice was old and 
dusty. It hit my ears like crunching ash. A voice that might once have been female, but which was rendered soot-ridden and raspy with the passage of time. You can go if you want to. You can leave the girl with me. That broke the trance. The idea of leaving Penny with this hideous thing repulsed and repelled me more than any fear for my own safety. I turned and glared at it. I don't know what I expected, but it was not this. The thing in the armchair, poking the fire viciously, was dressed in a floor-length, black woolen, turn-of-the-century style Salvation Army uniform that covered all but the tips of her appointed black boots and buttons so tightly at the wrists and neck that her hands and throat were purple with strain. The ensemble came complete with one of those black straw-woven bonnets, trimmed in red with a funereal bow on the side that hid her face from me and its depths. She turned her head to look at me, and there in the pit of the arch of her bonnet was framed a white, gaunt face, pure white and hatchet-shaped, colorless, but for the red slit of a mouth and the two gaping black chasms where her eyes should have been. And then it smiled. The thin, grotesque gash that served as lips, where the creature pulled back over black and brown, putrefied teeth. She spoke again. And this time it was more of a command than a proposition. You leave her with me. I think I screamed. I know I ran out into the hall. The bars were gone from the door, and I was grasping to grab the handle when it opened from the outside. I crashed straight into my mom, and I was screaming and gibbering. I remember my dad yelling at me, and then the smell. It was the unique smell of burning carpet. My dad screamed something about me being a dangerous little fool, and then he screamed in pain as he tried to pick up the still-glowing hot poker off the passage floor, and he dropped it again as it burned his hand. The scorch mark from that night, you can still see it on the hall carpet. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. I had noticed it, but never asked about it. And now that I knew its origin story, I got a chill. My pops beat me black and blue that night, all the time yelling that I was supposed to be the clever one. So how come I did not know not to play with fire? Of course, when they checked, the grate was cold, the ashes undisturbed. So how did the poker get red hot? He didn't care to pursue that line of questioning, but I swore I would get even with that woman, that thing, that whatever it was. I didn't want it to think that it will ever get me out of this damned house or that it can ever come back in it again. No one threatens my family and won't ever again. I never forget. I always get even. In the past 10 years since he died, 
I have occasionally driven past my friend's terrace house. It's impossible for me not to hear that story in my head every time I do. There's part of me that wonders how my friend was welcomed into the spirit world. Has he come face to face again with the entity that haunted him all those years ago? Does he now understand the why and who of it? My hope is that he is at peace and that whatever was in the house that night has also moved on and is at peace. I have lots of doubts, though. Not about the veracity of my friend's story. No, he had no reason to tell me a fictional account. If you could have seen his face while he was telling the story, it was easy to see that just behind his eyes, he was reliving all the shocking details of that night again. My doubts are whether he truly is at peace. He was as serious as I've ever seen him at the end of that story. He meant vengeance, whether it was in this world or the next. I fear he is still searching for it on the other side of the perception veil. Hey, this is Steve White, the host of The Perception Veil. Thanks for listening to this episode, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed putting it together for you. Now, most of the stories that I will do here are ones that were submitted to me by people who actually had these experiences. So if you have had a strange experience with the paranormal or something happened that you know, it defies rational explanation, and you would like to share that experience with me, I'd love to hear about it. Maybe it will wind up in a future episode. You can tell me about your experience at theperceptionveil at gmail.com. Also, if you like what I'm doing here and would like to support the work, you can buy me a coffee. There is a link in the show notes. Thanks again. Your support is greatly appreciated. And I will see you on the other side of the veil soon.